Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby and welcome to the 65th edition of the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. And they said it would never last. Today, inflation. Is it making a comeback? Well, UK inflation is now at 2.9%. That's the highest it's been in five years. That's well over the 2% that we're told that the Bank of England feels comfortable with and sets as its target rate. So we perhaps can expect interest rates to go up soon. So does that mean inflation is making a comeback in the US? It's at a seven-month high. It's at 1.9%. So is it making a comeback, Steve? Or will we go back to noflation, which is where we were not so long ago? Yeah. Now, the inflation is making a comeback, but it's a temporary one. Uh, a bit like uh, uh, the final final run of an Olympic athlete. Uh, it happens, but it'll fall over. And the reason is simple. The, the major factor that's causing inflation in the UK uh, and it's causing less inflation than economic theory says it would do, uh, is the devaluation of the pound. Mm. Uh, Britain imports you know, a substantial proportion of its, of its goods. It's got a 5% of GDP trade deficits, one of the highest in the world. Uh, it's been building it up for incessantly. Industry has gone from 20-plus percent of GDP to of the order of 10, while Germans remain pretty much constant at 23%. Um, so these factors mean that there is a obvious uh, pressure on importers to put up prices if the if the D, if the pound goes down, so it costs them more to buy the goods to bring them in. They don't pass on the whole uh, proportion of the fall. So you know we're getting two point nine percent inflation uh, with a, something of like a fifteen to twenty percent devaluation. According to economic theory, it should be two or three times that rate of inflation. Uh, so that shows the extent to which importers absorb things to hang on to their margins. Uh, rather than rather than losing market share, yeah. but that's that's the major factor in the UK. Well, hanging on to their customers and squeezing their margin, surely. Yeah, that's what they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But, and yeah. yet, you know, cur- curiously, in the United States, where the inflation rate is still high as well. Okay, not as high as it is in the UK, um, but I mean, it's it 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 isn't at the two percent, which central banks seem to like as their target. And we'll talk about why that is in just a second. But Bill yeah. Dudley from the New York Fed, uh, just this last month, he was giving a speech saying he was surprised that the US economy wasn't seeing inflation grow. He blamed it uh, on prospective buyers comparing prices across different sellers quickly and easily as though this is something new. And I guess it is in a way because it's part of the shift to online channels, which was the other reason he said that inflation wasn't growing. In other words, he was blaming the internet. Is he right to do that? Um, in a very trivial level, that might be a factor. Uh, and certainly, in the sense that there's more competition out there that squeezes the margins that producers can put on their goods, and particularly when you've got competition coming in from third world countries, which have substantially lower not just wage costs but often you know, capital costs uh, and certainly environmental costs. Uh, then that is a factor in the level of deflation, but it's not the primary one. This is the uh, this is the frustration of me watching this sort of stuff happening. Uh, the, the main reason why we've had deflation as a trend over the last twenty years is fundamentally, and uh, sorry guys, but this is a boring old answer. It's the rising level of private debt. 
because what happens with that rising level of private debt is two things. One, there's less investment. Even though you borrow money to invest, there's actually a trend to less investment out of that than if there was no debt finance. Uh, paradoxical but true. And secondly, it's not the capitalists who pay for the increase in the level of private debt, even if they're doing the borrowing, it's the workers. And so workers are uh, hit with a double whammy. Their, their income share declines and there's less employment than there would be without the high levels of, of private debt. And that leads to deflation because the major pressure that determines inflation is actually wage demands. If wage demands uh, are equal to or greater than the recorded increase in labour productivity, then that is the, the primary cause of inflation. Mm. So we're seeing a tiny amount of that in the States now because, again, what's driving it? A credit revival. So predominantly, ra- rather than that uh, coming from the you know massive Donald Trump boost to trade, yada, 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 biggest trade surplus in history, et cetera, et cetera, um, it's coming from this slight revival in credit but as I've said, since, 19, since 1999, the world's turning Japanese. Uh, Japan was the first to get in this trap. And what it has is periodic revivals because of an increase in credit, which then makes the central bank confident to put up rates, which is one of the triggers that encourages people to stop borrowing money. And then when the credit demand disappears, <laughs> the economy goes into another slump. Right. But why is that happening right now? Why is that all of a sudden? Is it simply because uh, there's been, you know, these apparent green shoots? So everyone thinks, oh, the economy's uh, back on the up and therefore we can start borrowing again. Is it, is it as simple as that? Yeah, it's a bit, bit of a feedback. I mean, the borrowing itself causes the increase in apparent prosperity because when you don't borrow money for the sheer pleasure of being in debt to the bank, mm. you borrow money to spend and that borrowed money increases aggregate demand and that gives you a stimulus. I'm looking at the uh, UK data right now. We might actually post this actually, mate, if we can pop a, a graphic up on the podcast as well, I'd like to do that. Yep. Uh, this is the latest figures uh, just came out uh, on the weekend from the Bank of International Settlements at the level and the rate of change of private debt in the UK. Now that peaked at 15% of GDP at the beginning of the Great Recession. And by 2010, it was down to minus 5%. It's bounced up and down in the UK's case, uh, much more volatile than America. And that probably reflects how much more open the British economy is to international factors rather than just domestic. But it's been rising since uh, about 2016, began, beginning maybe 2017. And it's now headed about to 10% of GDP. So that means borrowed money is adding an additional 10% of demand to what is right. the demand from the turnover of existing money. And that's going to cause a bit of an increase in capacity of you know, employment, capacity of workers to get slightly higher wage rises, and that adds to the price pressure. That's what America's experiencing. So, I mean, you said that... Infl- uh, that yeah, you yeah said- sorry, that was... A- I gave you I gave you UK data, but the same trends apply in America. Yeah, 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 absolutely, and, and in many other parts of the world, of course. Now, you you said yeah. that you know the inflation was really caused by wage pressures, but basically people demanding more, and that's a, that's a bit of a loop as well. But I mean, the other thing is it, it it's caught it's caused by or it can be caused by the money supply increasing, and yet. Uh, central banks have frantically been extending the money supply with their quantitative easing, still no inflation. So I guess that means if you look at it like that and say, well, uh, all things being equal uh, with with quantitative easing, we should be seeing inflation increase. The fact that we're not actually means that this wage pressure, you know, it's uh, it's almost in negative territory, isn't it? I mean, one isn't counterbalancing the other. Yeah, and and this with my QE, this is this is one of the classic um, cases. Imagine I had a bottle of champagne, 
which often I do. Yeah, and I was going to say, you're not stretching the imagination <laughs> too far there, Steve. There you go. And I was pouring it into glasses and I was saying, okay, uh, here's have a glass of champagne. And I poured 80% of the bottle, or 90, 90% of the bottle of the finance uh, champagne glass. And 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 it's actually a whole, the whole bottle. I poured the whole bottle into the finance glass and it tripled over and about 10% fell into the uh, glass for the real economy. That's what QE is. So in the, in the British case, it's, it's nice because the British numbers, at least in the first year, are pretty close to round numbers. The, the first year of QE in the, in, in the UK was equivalent to 200 billion pounds. Now, that went straight to the finance sector because they, the way the QE operates is they buy bonds off the private uh, banks and financial institutions. Yep. And of course, bonds go one way, money comes the other. So 200, million, 200 billion pounds turns up in the finance sector. They have been, the whole purpose of this is to encourage them to take on what the, what the banks call risky assets, which are basically shares. So they go and buy 200 billion pounds worth of shares. Now, hey, People who've got shares have now got 200 billion additional pressure. If the whole increase of that money goes through to share prices alone, it's reasonable to say that it, most of it does. Uh, that's a 200 billion pound boost in share prices. It's a 200 billion pound boost in the wealth of the wealthy who own the shares. Now, they may then decide to capitalise on that and they'll sell some of the shares they've bought by other shares, by property and so on. And they might spend 20 million, uh, 10% of that increase uh, getting a new chauffeur or you know, replacing the Lamborghini because one of the tyres looks a bit bad. Um, so with that type of expenditure, you then get about out of 200 billion pounds in QE, right. you get a, a 20 billion turns up in the real economy. And because there's so much debt, the rate at which money turns over has slowed down dramatically so you might get 30 billion pounds of extra demand out of that right because that, that is the other factor isn't it the, the, the speed of it all so i think what you yeah. what, what you're saying is i mean and we talked about this before quantitative easing is such an inefficient measure of trying to put money into uh, into real people's pockets rather than those people who work for banks and mm. uh, and what you're saying here is that uh, yeah and then compensated for by the fact that the rate of money turns over so uh, so slowly so that's not going to have an inflationary pressure because it's uh, we're looking at it com- compared yeah, to a tiny amount, right? Com- and compared to subdued amount. wages. So look, let's yeah. let's let's have a look at this preoccupation with inflation. I mean, it seems to be something we're very concerned about, or certainly central banks are. I mean, should we be concerned when it grows too quickly? Um, you know, and uh, it's strange that when it's not there at all, uh, we don't see well, that as a good thing. Yeah, well, look, I think, I think the best analogy here is um, in before 1500, people used to be really concerned about comets. Comets were evil portents. Something terrible is going to happen. And, of course, we knew at that, that stage that comets are atmospheric phenomena because the heavens are perfect and therefore they couldn't be happening in the heavens. So they worried obsessively about every time they saw a comet. We now know that's total crap. Okay, we know that they're not atmospheric phenomena. They're you know they're, they're galactic phenomena. Um, they're periodic. Uh, it's just simply gravity that drags them back into circulation once more. So, um, in the same sense with inflation, the neoclassical model of the economy um, has really has the idea of the market. The, the, monet- the monetary system is secondary to them. The economy is really a real system, and uh, it's a fundamentally a barter system. Money is just a, f- a fluid that makes it easier to, to barter with because you don't have to find a person who 
you don't have to sell your pigs to somebody who wants diamonds. You sell it to somebody who gives money and then there's a, you don't have the, what they call the double coincidence of wants. That's the only fact that they see for money. So what they then worry about uh, is they presume in full employment if the government increases and they think the government is the only um, entity that does increase the money supply. They think if the government does it too much, there'll be inflation. And that actually has a negative effect on people because they've got to carry more money. Uh, there's, they have a decline in the utility. That's really bad. So they fight inflation. So that's, that's the mental picture they have. And of course, it's completely wrong. It describes a planet that doesn't even exist in this universe. But, I mean, in, in, in that uh, very simplistic view where, you know, I've got some eggs and I need a horse and so we need money as an interim step because the person who has the eggs doesn't have the horse I want. I mm. mean, uh, it, uh, in that barter economy, would you, you wouldn't have inflation, would you? Uh, no, you wouldn't. And, well, actually, Milton Friedman's model, with this all, uh, Milton really, really originated this. He called himself a monetarist, which I think is almost ironic because he basically said money doesn't matter, but inflation does. And his model of money was is literally, that's where the helicopter analogy came from. A helicopter flies over a country uh, that has $1,001 notes in circulation, which turn over 12 times a year had a rather interesting idea of the velocity of money. And uh, what happens when the, the money supply is doubled by the helicopter, people grab the notes and then there's a bit of a boost to economic activity. And then ultimately what happens is it sits down to equilibrium again, but nom nominal prices are twice as high. Uh, but the, the cost that Friedman foresaw out of this mythical world was that that would mean you'd need to carry more money than you actually would want to if there's no inflation. And that was a terrible social cost and that had to be fought at all costs. Right. including high unemployment. But apart from the fact you had more money in your pocket, it wouldn't make any difference at all, would it? That's exactly it. That's why I say he calls himself a monetarist, but he's saying money doesn't matter at the same time. Mm. Now, my perspective and the perspective of the Bank of England and the Bundesbank uh, and most non-Orthodox economists is that money is created by banks. Uh, it's, it's not about the helicopters. It's out of the uh, financial sector that it falls on you know, whatever part of the economy they're lending to, normally the financial sector. And that is the main cause of boosts in, in demand, but it's also the cause in the increase in private debt, which affects the real economy and drives it down. And this is the, the myth that neoclassicals have. They think they can divide off the real economy from the nominal, right. and they can't. The nominal drives the real. But what they are driving very little influence on, because they're not uh, taking this money and dropping it from a helicopter so everyone has some, as you said, they're, they're passing it through the, the wealthy, through the, uh, through the financial systems. So what they're not doing well, actually, is- Mike Michael Hudson put it very nicely. He said the helicopter's flying over Wall Street, not Main Street. <laughs> All right, okay, fair enough. Very low, so uh, only the... Uh, oh, only, yeah. oh, yeah, look, yeah, you know, they, they gently oh. drop it into your pocket as you walk along the street on... <laughs> On the thread needle. So okay, so that's so that's not so that clearly is not having a great deal of influence on on inflation. So why the preoccupation with inflation? I mean, uh, I mean, could, could can we have if we had an increasing GDP? If the economy was growing, we'd all be better off. If inflation is static, then we all all benefit. And and uh, surely that's nothing to be concerned about, is it? That the happy days, you know, the economy's growing, uh, the money we've got is uh, is is worth the same amount it was a year ago. Uh, why be worried if it's not? Well, if there's inflation going on, it's worth less. Um, so, you know, mm. and if you, if you, if you cast him, you and I both lived through the experience of the relatively high inflation levels of the uh, late 70s and early 80s. And that irritated, sim simply speak, it irritated people uh, in the sense that with that inflation going on, uh, and it's you know, driven by cost pressures because the economy was in a genuine boom, uh, that boom 
meant that, damn, we've got to put the prices up all the time. Uh, you've got to negotiate your wages all the time. And it's frankly irritating. And I can understand people having a gut reaction to it and thinking, oh, it'd be better if the prices were stable and therefore supporting what the central banks were doing, which was based on a completely different model of the world and a, model, a different model of how uh, inflation was actually caused. Uh, and therefore, that partly contributed to the situation we're in now where we have a financial crisis. Yet we have very low inflation. So shouldn't we be celebrating that? Um, I I would I'm, I would be happier in that sense if it could be achieved. But uh, what inflation actually does is redistribute income as well. Right. Yeah. And if you, you see it coming from wages, if wage pressure is the major factor that's giving you inflation, wage rises greater than productivity uh, mean that there's a pressure to increase prices and to give money to workers. Now, if you have the opposite world, and also what that does is reduces the debt burden too. One of the major reasons that the uh, 70s and 80s crises were comparatively mild was that infl- even though there was a debt slump caused by a, a credit bubble bursting and therefore a, a slump in investment and, uh, and so on, it was revived because with the in- inflation rate being high, even though the money was effectively worth worth less, your debts are in nominal terms, and therefore the inflation effectively reduced the debt burden. So that's... Right. And yet when we go back, let's go back and have a look at the UK in the 70s. I know we did a separate podcast on this, so we can go back uh, and, and revisit this. But the, uh, you know, inflation was over 20%. If we look at Argentina yeah. in recent times, I mean, like last year, it was over 40%. Uh, yeah. I would have thought the people who are suffering in those circumstances, as you say, I mean, the, the people who are benefiting are those who've got high debts. I'd imagine in the UK in the 70s, the people with high debts are actually the, some of the wealthiest people in the country. So they'd be the ones who are benefiting rather than the poor people. Yeah, well, fundamentally, they were. Though at the same time, they're, um, uh, you know, the cash flows, the service, the debt were declining, uh, asset prices rising. So they were actually fairly happy in that sense. But again, as I said, it's irritating because if you are if you're not, you're not necessarily the manager of a corporation with the, with the system we have, you know, the limited liability company system these days, but you are the shareholder. Uh, and the managing director is pissed, pissed off because he's always having to have you know, every quarterly meetings to increase prices rather than annual, which is the norm. So um, it does become irritating, and I do have sympathy for that. So, but, but that gave the public a reason to support the arguments of Milton Friedman about how to fight inflation, and that was simply all you had to do was reduce the rate of growth of the money supply, and you do that by having the government that runs uh, either no deficit or smaller deficits, and what will happen, according to Milton Friedman, was inflation will fall as people's expectations adjust. There won't be any real hit. Uh, there'll be a small hit, but not a huge hit. Uh, on the employment rate, there'll be a, a, people will initially see the decline in rate of inflation as a sign of falling demand, and they'll therefore decide to go and you know, relax on the beach rather than working, and you'll have a, a bit of a rise of the recorded level of unemployment. That was the, the mythology. Of course, when Vokler put the rates up, as Vokler, Vokler put the rates up in uh, what was it, 1980, 81, 82, the economy crashed, and went with a crashed economy, high unemployment. It meant that workers couldn't. Uh, make those wage demands. They accepted wage cuts, and bam, we had deflation. And yet, you know, so uh, yeah, and obviously that central banks are preoccupied with uh, inflation, and they are putting interest rates up when they they're concerned that infl- you know the inflation genie will be let out of the bottle. Uh, yeah. And I, I want to talk about whether there's a tipping point at where we should be concerned. But let, let's you know look at Argentina for example. As I said, forty percent inflation. The economy is still going. 
Um, the cost of living is slow compared to the UK or the US. People are, you know, but that, that means it's not, you know, so high that people can't afford to live there. Is that causing irreparable damage to their economy? And you said, you know, it's it's inconvenient to have to keep on changing prices. But, I mean, that seems like a, you know, it's inconvenient. You've got to change figures in a spreadsheet if you're running a business. It doesn't seem like a, a an overriding concern. No, no, it's not. It's not. And uh, the real danger for countries like Argentina is they're normally forced to borrow in American dollars because they have... Um, you know, huge trade deficit. They've, you know, it, it, it was it was one of the uh, social and industrial powerhouses of the early uh, 1900s, mm. uh, but it just went totally down the tube. People were talking about Argentina as like Australia is going to be a booming economy in the future. And it, if you walk through the streets of Buenos Aires, you see a place which is in decay, uh, not in prosperity. Uh, but but the the problem for them is that this borrowed money. Um, where they're borrowing in American dollars, they've got to pay it in American dollars. They've right. got to sell Argentina and, to get it, and then they can have a crisis again. Right, because their currency is devaluing all the time because of inflation, yeah. and therefore, yeah, they're having to pay more in their own currency to pay off that that that, that debt in US dollars. I can see that's a problem. Okay, mm. so I mean that's I mean that that would be the biggest concern with inflation. Then, if you, if a country's with high foreign debt, uh, that is a that becomes a significant issue for them. Yeah, high foreign debt and also a trade deficit. The two two go together. Uh, but, yeah, that's the problem. Of course, in the UK now qualifies in that situation, which yeah. is why the bank is panicking, I expect. Well, the bank is panicking a little bit. Mark Carney from the Bank of England, uh, he's forecasting that, um, well, first of all, the reason why uh, in the current inflation, which is, as you said, is the devaluation of the pound. I think everyone agrees on that. And, and Mark Carney is also saying, you know, the, the fall in migrant workers now could push wages up as well, and that could create further inflation but both of those are sort of like one-time events aren't they once all the migrant workers have all gone then wages won't keep rising surely uh, just as the pound won't keep falling i mean um once the you know once that's happened surely we're not going to have inflation it's it's just almost resetting the value of the pound yeah it'll it'll be a, again it's a transitory boost in that sense if you go back and rather slump again which i think is highly likely because of again the level of credit uh, turning around at some point, uh, then that that particular thing will dissipate, and we'll be back in the deflationary world. Right. What about the tipping point then that I uh, talked about? You know, is there a point where um, inflation just just gain momentum? I mean, you know, you're saying we're, yeah. we're we're a long way away from that now because of this level of debt. Yeah. But in the past, what are the factors that drive this spiraling of inflation? Well, we used to call it the wage the wage price inflation spiral. And by the way, this is something which uh, which is in Bill Phillips's original paper uh, on what gave us gave birth to the Phillips curve. Uh, so the wage price spirals can occur. And if you what do you then have is if you have high employment, so workers have got bargaining power. Uh, and you have inflation at the same time, then the inflation means workers are going to demand wage rises, and you can get this, you know, infinite loop, if you like, of uh, rising wage demands, rising inflation, causing rising wage demands, and that's the sort of thing you need to break at some point, which Evokers snapped it in two, um, but. It's re- recurring right now. And if they try snapping it in two, they'll snap the economy as well. Well, I mean, they are saying that's what's going to happen, aren't they? Because mm. employment levels yep. are very yep. high. And so, they're assuming that, you know, inflation levels are very low. But it's just a matter of time. So let's raise interest rates before we reach this tipping point. And I'm looking and thinking, well, you know, you're, you're looking at inflation levels that are well below your supposed 2% target. Why? What's the rush? Yeah, like, I, again, I think... I would be worried above a level of inflation of, say, 
five to ten percent, and that somewhere in that range, you're going to start getting the the factors that lead to wage price spirals if you have a boom going on. Why two percent? Uh, then where's that come from? That comes from what's called the Taylor equation, and this is a guy one of the one of the arch conservatives of American politics, American economics. Uh, gave a paper where he said that if you look at what central banks have actually done in the past, you can see that they had uh, targeted a 2% rate of inflation. And what they should do is when inflation starts to rise, they should increase interest rates twice as fast. And then the economy returned to it. And there were twos all the way through his equation. It was, it was actually a numerical equation, not just an algebraic one. And though they claim they don't follow the Taylor rule, Taylor was right. That's what they were doing in the past. And generally speaking, it's what they've done since that paper came out. So the mindset, the 2% inflation at the stable point has been not just built into the psyche of economists, it's built into their models as well. So what they call, they, they, these wonderful loads of garbage they call dynamic models, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models. I say you can summarize them with three numbers. The three numbers are they want a 2% rate of inflation, a 3% rate of growth, and a 4% rate of rate of interest. Yeah. Okay. And they are still striving for that. But yeah. uh, but your point is that the, uh, the let's start with the 2% inflation. That's not going to happen. The growth isn't going to happen either because, again, because there's just not oh. enough uh, – there's, there's too much debt uh, in, in Western economies. So presumably then the worst thing to do is going to be to push up interest rates, and yet that's what everyone is talking about doing. Yeah, yeah. Like what it will do is, as those rates start to rise, that will re, that will doubly cut into households and corporations, which are at the same time taking on additional debt. So you've got a nonlinearity there. The debt's rising, and the cost of the debt is rising at the same time. That bites into people's profit expectations. It bites into their living expenses as well, and they go into reverse. And what then happens is you go back to deleveraging once more. Now we have a historical precedent for this: the Great Depression. Uh, began in the end of 1929. Uh, it hit its peak in America with an unemployment rate of 26% in uh, 32, 33. And then there was a revival. What was actually happening was debt had fallen dramatically in nominal terms. It, it rose relative, relative to GDP because of deflation running at 10% in America for a couple of years. Uh, but uh, so as debt was falling, GDP was falling faster, and you therefore had deleveraging. But then when the economy recovered in 32-33, there was a, a slowdown in the rate at which debt was falling, and then it slowly began to increase. Uh, by 37, the unemployment rate had fallen to 11%. And at this point, and this, is very, this is very familiar, uh, Roosevelt's advisors told him, you've got to start fighting inflation. You've got to cut this, you know, it's, it's time now to start cutting the government deficit. Uh, well, he did cut the government deficit, and that triggered, and I think the rates went up as well, that triggered another period of, def- uh, of uh, deleveraging by the private sector. And the unemployment rate shot up from 11% to 20%. Now, at that point, that's where mainstream economists said, we don't understand the economy. They gave up. Uh, but fortunately, the economy was rescued by a little bloke with a mustache on continental Europe. <laughs> and when he started dropping nice little, you know, fire firecracker presents on on London, uh, the government gave up the in, in the UK's case in particular, but also the American gave up on the um, on the uh, let's control our spending. And, and there's no such thing as a bad bomb. And spending the, the the UK's case, for example, the government deficit in 1940 was 40 percent of GDP. Mm. Now that that you know. 
not only did it stimulate the economy, we generated lots of uh, spitfires. Uh, it also drastically reduced the level of private debt because with rationing at the same time, nothing else to spend it on. You pay your debts down and bang, you come out the other side of the Second World War with the lowest level of debt in 100 years. Right. Uh, we probably don't want to go down that route again, uh, although we can we can certainly take the, uh, the, the the government spending and cash injection. But it but it um, it seems like and, and you know we all we know regular listeners to the podcast know, of course, that the answer to all of this is is some form of debt jubilee. But assuming that's mm. assuming that's not going to happen in a hurry, the long term game for a central bank or for uh, or for a treasury, then uh, it sounds like you're saying. I mean, let's not worry too much about inflation. Let's worry about the amount of money that you've got in the country that's uh, based on foreign loans, and uh, and let's try and reduce your trade deficit. Yeah, the, the trade deficit is the one that really matters. I mean, I'm, you see um, the economists obsessing about government deficit and ignoring the trade deficit. The government deficit can be financed by the government because it owns its own bank. Yeah. The trade deficit, you've got to sell goods to get them back. Uh, when, you, when, you have a, you know, when you're buying goods by, by you know, you're converting English pounds, into, you, sorry, UK pounds, uh, into another currency, and therefore you're taking money out of your economy, and that is a double whammy because also you've got to be selling assets to finance those purchases. So you end up with a, a declining amount of capital in the economy uh, and a declining currency at the same time. Right. So the answer to our question, uh, inflation, is it making a comeback? The, the answer is no. The answer is yes for a while uh, and it'll dissipate. And before it dissipates, if the banks start putting up rates, we'll have a recession. Right. And the uh, just to remind everybody, the inflation rate in Japan is 0.2%. <laughs> and has been for some time, I think. Uh, it's been pretty much zero. In fact, if you take a look at the – this is quite a remarkable thing. If you look at the uh, chart of, of nominal Japanese GDP, it peaked in 1990, and it's basically gone sideways. So the nominal GDP in yen in Japan has not changed for going on 30 years. All right. A good point to leave it on. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, mate. There we are. That is Professor Steve Keen, and that is the Debunking Economics Podcast. Next time, what should Trump do about China? President Trump has been complaining about China's balance of trade often enough. He said they're running their currency too low so they can flog more stuff. Is he right about that? And if so, what can he do or should he do about it? Uh, We'll talk about that next time on the Debunking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening today. We'll catch you then. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.